The fact is that a week before I was dropped from the England team for the first time in 11 years, I had given um, my account of what I felt was discrimination towards me, what I felt was a bullying culture. So, whichever way you look at it, being part of that culture review has cost me my, potentially cost me my own career. Hello and welcome to the Book Club with me, Kate Mason. And me, Jim Campbell. For this week's Book Club, we start in a fairly conventional place. Some kids are just really good at football. Wherever they go, they'll find other kids to play with. They're honing their skills so that by the time they're being scouted, it's so instinctual that people say they were born to play the game. Parents watching on predict great things, glory, top clubs. If they can just show the right people what they've got. And Ialuko is one of those kids. But unfortunately for her, just letting her football do the talking wasn't to turn out to be the only option. I categorically refused to write any statement because I'd already suggested that I did not, it's not for me to come up with that, to come up with that um, uh, determination that the FA are institutionally racist. It's not for me to come up with, I've never said that publicly and I've never said that. My comments have always been based on what I felt were racist comments to both myself and Juju Spence. This week for Book Club, we're reading They Don't Teach This by Aniola Aluko. Still Aluko. Still Aluko. Going all the way. What a chance. What a goal by Aluko. She's beaten the entire Dutch defence and equalised with an outstanding solo effort. Aniola Aluko does it all herself. What a goal. Aniola Aluko's professional achievements make for extraordinary reading. She has 102 England caps, has won multiple titles, playing at the highest level in England, Italy and the United States, and is an Olympian, having represented Team GB at London 2012. She was also the first female pundit on Match of the Day, and for good measure as a qualified solicitor too. For many people outside of football, she's known for taking on the FA after they failed to look into her concerns about racial discrimination and bullying within the England women's setup. And she covers that story with candor here. But they don't teach this. It's really the story of how an extraordinary woman pushed herself and her talents to their very limits and about what she learned on the way. And I'm so happy to say, guys, that we have Eni Aluko here in the Football Ramble studio to tell us all about that. Eni, thank you so much for Hi joining. Guys, thank you so much for an amazing introduction. <laughs> it's just so great that you've been able to come in and talk about uh, they don't teach this. And one thing that we really enjoyed, I think, uh, reading the book is how listening to the story of a female player in your era, if you like, is yeah. so much more akin to something from the men's game in like the 60s where right. you can really relate to the player, like the kind of money they're on, the kind right. of lifestyle they're leading. Right. And and it's so interesting to hear that side of football playing out. Yeah, no, well, thanks. First of all, thanks for thanks for reading the book. Um, I, I, I still always get so sort of happy when I see <laughs> peers, um, you know, peers that I respect, you know, reading my book. Um, but you're right. I think, you know, I look back and I think, wow, we really played for the love of the game. You know, and it's the real romantic side of it was was what it was for such a long time, probably up until 2012, um, where the Olympics kind of was a bit of a game changer for women's football and the money and the sponsorship started coming in. But prior to that, it was like, yeah, it was like, you know, I was just an ordinary person trying to kind of balance becoming a lawyer and having a good plan B and, you know, playing football. Um, you know, when I was a bit younger at Birmingham, we used to pay subs, you mm. know, we'd pay £5 for our kit and we were happy to do so because it was like, we just loved football. Um, 
So, and I think now it's it's pretty topical actually because we look. I think there's been a lot of conversation in football around, you know, what the lower tier of football looks like and and how important it is for football. And and it reminds me of women's football. It reminds me mm. of that. Like we really only we really used to do it just for the love of it. Um, and ultimately, I think that's what keeps us going. You know, that's yeah. what that's what keeps it very honest. Yeah. It sounds like from the book there are some great passages early on when you talk about playing on the field near your, near where you lived with your brother uh-huh. and just the kids that lived around there and you know you talk of sort of dreaming about playing at Wembley and like you know I used to kick a ball around with my brother in the garden and we'd dream about playing at Wembley but at the same time did you have to sort of edit that dream so that when you played at Wembley women's football took off as well and so you had to, it's almost <laughs> like there's, there's more had to happen in your dream uh, than than in mine but it actually did it actually did take place in that way because it sounds like from the book it took it took a while to even find a women's team to even right. find the women's game let alone just kicking the ball around with with your mates outside like Yeah no you're absolutely right I think you know so I started playing football at 5 years old um, you know, in the local estate in Birmingham, and it was all boys, mm. and um, I was very easily accepted w- within the boys group. But I became known as sort of the only girl in the boys team, and I was quite happy with that. Um, but then it started. You know, then it kind of became a thing where it was like, well, I can't be the only girl, surely. Um, so <laughs> I can't be the first person like, to have I thought of I'm not an alien. It's like come from another planet. So then I, you're right. It took until like 12 years old for me to actually see other girls that played football. Um, and I think in relation to the dreaming stuff, like I, I couldn't really dream about Wembley because mm. it just wasn't even any close to being attainable because it wasn't on TV. There was just there was nothing, um, anything, there was nothing, any, anything close to it, aside from like watching the Williams sisters play at Wimbledon and it was a completely different sport. Yeah. So between the ages of 10 and 12, I actually played tennis because I was like, actually, that's probably more of an attainable thing to do. Um, you know, two strong black women and it just, it became something I wanted to do. But then I quickly realized I wasn't as good at tennis as I was at football. So I wasn't really able to dream like my brother. Mm. Um, but, and, and so the, the, the road was really windy in a way. There wasn't a sort of a linear, um, the, the only, so I've, I probably realized I could become a professional footballer when the year before I got offered a, a contract, <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't something I grew up thinking I could do at all actually. Yeah. Did that bother you? So Sonny, obviously he's mm. playing for Reading, Reading doing really yes. well in the championship, top of the table, I think. Um, did that when you became aware of that, did that bother you? Because you're obviously playing together. He's younger than you, right? He's two years younger. Yeah, yeah. so you're like the older one, um, you're the senior partner here, but he could go on and have something that... Yeah, not really. I mean, um, you know, my mother's very wise um, and sort of quite philosophical. And um, she never really made me feel as if I was disadvantaged for being a girl. Mm. Um, it was more, you know, you have a different path and you have, you know, y- your gift will be used in different ways to your brother so I always saw it like that and it was you know we we just kind of we we enjoyed this sport together we we were big Man United fans growing up before Eric Cantona broke my heart and left um (laughs) so we we shared the passion of football um and I always saw my path that was going to be different to his Mm. um so so yeah no it was never a sort of a resentment thing or um, and you know, he, interesting. He always says to me now, "You have so many more, op- so much more options than I do." 
coming huh. out of the men's game. Obviously, financially, you know, it's completely different. But um, in terms of career security moving forward, he he always says to me, actually, you have you have more going for you. Um, because you've gone to, you know, you've become a lawyer, you've, right. you've done a master's, you've done all of these things. And um, and whereas he, he kind of looks at it and says, OK, you know, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm secure for the rest of my life, but I still want to do. Yeah, yeah, I still want to do something with my life, you know. Um, so it's, it's quite an interesting way of looking at it. Yeah, I suppose that's part. But I guess that is because you have done something quite special, though many women's players had to do that because, you know, they knew they're not going to be set up for life. And we'll definitely talk more about that um, as we go. But I want to hear a bit more about, um, so you you were a good player, you found a team to play with, and then you were called up to to the England squad. And um, unfortunately, you were going to stand out on the first day (laughs) you turned up for that. Can you tell us a bit about that? I really like I haven't lived down the story. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so... I got called up for England at 14. I was playing for Birmingham at the time. And um, it was a massive deal. Like, it was a huge deal for me and my family. And um, um, the letter came through. My my mom laminated the letter immediately. Um, this is where laminating was, like, the thing to Pretty do. Pretty big, yeah. yeah. Um, so it didn't get damaged, right? It didn't get yeah. damaged. So she kind of laminated it. And it was this big thing in the house. And anyway, um, it was at the first camp, I believe, was at Loughborough. Yeah, it was Loughborough. And um, my mom was like, well, you know, there was sort of no direction as to what to wear. So my mom was like, well, no, you've got to, you've got to wear, a, like, you've got to look smart. Um, you know, almost as if, like, it was my first day of school. So I turned up to the England camp, like, in, like, a skirt suit and uh, shoes. And it was like, oh, God, I realised it wasn't that, it was, you know, everybody else was in England tracksuits or tracksuits of some sort. <laughs> but beforehand, you must have. Did you think? N- no, I didn't. No, I generally didn't. know. I just thought, I, I, you know, it was kind of seen as this big thing. Smart. Yeah. In in my house, it was like, no, you got to turn up. You can't turn up in a tracksuit. Yeah, um, I was like you're getting a, getting an MBA or something. Yeah, <laughs> it, was like that. it was like that, and we just didn't have a clue. So. I, t- you know, I turned up and um, I think, you know, I've never lived it down. It's quite a funny story, but I mean, I quickly rushed and, and got a tracksuit on when I got there. But um, So you, you took a spare tracksuit just in case? No, no. So I had to ask for one oh, God. when I got there because it was like, well, you know. So for most of the sort of meetings and stuff, I had, uh, you know, I had my introductory meetings. I had my suit on and yeah. it was just really embarrassing because it was like, <laughs> oh God, you know, the kid that didn't quite get the memo um but actually I think looking back it really reinforced how much it meant Mm. like how important it was um for for me and my family yeah and before you were able to go that that was another crucial but moment in the book that I thought was told really nicely um about your passports yes yes yeah so at the time um I didn't have like my British passport, so we we we'd been in England for a long time, and so we were eligible for, but we just never got round to actually getting one. Mm. Um, and, and you know, at this point, my mom, you know, single parent, um, you know, grafting, had just started a new business, so the, the getting sort of traveling wasn't high on the list of priorities. <laughs> so she just didn't think, you know, didn't necessarily think about it, and and then it was like, oh, I I, I need one. Um, I needed a British passport. And it was this kind of, um, it was almost like a sort of a, a challenge to 
to who I was because all of a sudden it was like, why why don't I just have a British passport? Like, mm. and then I, I sort of my Nigerianness hit me, um, and you know being different, a different kind of England player kind of hit me. Yeah, um, I was so desperate to kind of have this passport and um, you know be be just sort of accepted in 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 the group that it kind of embarrassed me. But actually, it was just reality of who I was. You know, I was a sort of you know second generation Nigerian um, immigrant who had you know grown up in 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 England, but I'd never had to think about it before then. Yeah, the phrase you use in the book is hyphenated, hyphenated. isn't it? Which is a really nice way of of looking at and giving both of those kind of backgrounds and identities sort of equal weight. Um, yes. So, I mean, one of the things I, I find really I found really um, eye opening in the book was um, how much pride you talk about um in being an olympian not just a not just Mm -hmm. a footballer or an Mm -hmm. olympic footballer but actually an olympian as well which i think is with it's something that as as a football obsessive it's sort of easy to forget that that's a separate thing when you think about team gb at the olympics and that seemed to be something that really kind of brought the women's game forward in 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 a huge huge way so i mean that must have i mean that must have been unreal right just to to be a part of that it was unreal and and to be honest i think Football's a little bit snobby in, in that sense. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? It's and we had this kind of snobbery where we thought, you know, football was going to be the be all and end all of the Olympics, and it just wasn't. Like yeah. we were just like we were like not important in comparison to all the other incredible athletes that were like getting up at six a.m. swimming and running and doing all the other stuff. And and the experience allowed us to understand that, you know. So I made a point of kind of watching the boxing and watching the the archery and all these other sports that I'd never been exposed to. And it really humbled us as footballers because it's like, we don't do anything near <laughs> what these people do. Like, we should never complain again. You know? um, so that whole experience, it just made me so proud to, to kind of be an athlete amongst yeah. the sort of family of athletes. Um, I remember walking, you know, we we stayed in the Olympic Village for a week and it was like like this sort of athlete utopia. It was like it was amazing. I remember walking into a into the lift and Mo Farah was there and I was kind of like, Oh my god, it's Mo Farah. <laughs> he had no idea who I was. <laughs> and um it it's just um it's just an amazing experience. And as you said, it really opened the world up to women's football because we opened up the Olympics and I think it was like, Oh, women are really good at football. Yeah. Um and then everyone sort of jumped on the bandwagon and followed us, and we, you know, we played at Wembley, seventy thousand people. It was just incredible. It was just, you know, a highlight of my life. I think I'm so excited to hear you talk about it because it was so. Yeah, London 2012 was like, I don't know, just for me in deciding to become a sports broadcaster, it was like a massive moment right, then. Right. And watching women play football in at Wembley and just seeing all those people oh, watching it it just like I was I I just cried I yeah, just thought it was so amazing. exciting it was amazing it was really a game changer um because we'd, we'd had a Euros in 2005 but it, it didn't really have the same kind of um it didn't have the same kind of global impact mm. that the Olympics did for women's football um and lo and behold, off the back of that, the WSL started, clubs started giving their contracts to players, better better facilities, better resources, because I think it just lifted the respect of the game and, and the investment in the game. And, and here we are now in 2020, where it's kind of the best league in the world. 
So I'm really, I'm just super grateful to have been sort of right place, right time, home Olympics um, and playing. Because being a footballing Olympian is pretty special as well yeah. as a British person because... It doesn't really happen. It doesn't really happen. I mean, I think obviously we'll have a team in the 20, 2020 um, Olympics, but that's taken a lot of political wranglings, I think. I mean, the most kind of bizarre time, I think, feels like when you were 18 and you were trying to pass your exams to get into university. <laughs> you, If I remember right, you had an exam kind of moved somewhere so that you could then leave for the Euros. Yeah, so... Did you... Looking back on that now, Annie, because in the, in the book it feels like, oh, this is all just quite chaotic and <laughs> wild. And, oh, look, I'm doing an exam, but I'm also playing international yeah. football. I've, I had to have a lie down even reading about that. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's, it's, it's amazing that you, you managed yeah, that. It's bonkers. I mean, I, I look back now, I'm like, oh, my God, why did I do that? But <laughs> I, it just, I think at the time, I was just in this mindset all the time of like, how can I play football? Like, I just need to be able to play football. So... Whatever can I can do to fit around that? Mm. I mean, I just I, there was no real compromise on my education. Um, you know, my mom was quite strong on that, and 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 I, you know, I I'm the kind of person I always want to do well in whatever I do. So I wanted to do well in my in my GCSEs and my, my A levels. So, um, but it, the, the timing just clashed. So <laughs> when it came to we played at the Etihad Stadium, well, the now Etihad Stadium, I can't remember what it was called then, and um, I managed to arrange for my college to let me do the exam in some random place in Bolton. I can't remember. It was random. That can't um, help you. Your, your yeah. build up the logistics yeah. as well. Yeah. Like, yeah. And um, shout out to Hope Powell as well, who let me do it. Because, yeah. I mean, she could have easily said, no, that's not going to work. Like, I need you I need you prepared and head on the game. Um, but she she allowed me to do it. She believed in education. And, um, and yeah, so I did the exam in the morning got this really fancy mercedes chauffeur <laughs> to the game and uh yeah got, got got ready for the game was on the bench came on um <laughs> yeah and got a, got a d in the exam <laughs> <laughs> so i wouldn't advise it yeah. <laughs> i wouldn't advise that kind of prep to anyone <laughs> <laughs> I, th- I guess like it is easy to look back on that and go that's that's so much to take on but that's that's you know with me having read the book and you having obviously lived your life like we know yeah. we have the the benefit of hindsight but i guess at the time like it, it would, would have been the same for all, all female footballers you didn't really yeah. know where the game was going no, we didn't. so you had to you had to take that chance yeah. is that or defer for a year yeah like, exactly exactly and there was a lot of players that were working you know had mortgages it's a little bit like how rugby was back in the mm. day you mm. know for the men's men's sides it the was gentleman like, amateurs though yeah, that was, was like, like we, we must am- not take money we- <laughs> right, we were amateurs we were and we yeah. were sort of trying to sort of play for our country whilst trying to afford you know careers like any other you know young people um and um yeah so it was it, it was tough but i think it's 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 made us stronger you know now yeah. because now we look at the game and we go you know, for, certainly for someone like me who's still working in the game and I'm able to sort of have um, relationships with players where I can sort of guide them and help them um, it's being able to say look you know football is a priority but invest in yourself too invest mm. in your plan B invest in your education mm. um, and I'm really pleased to have just launched a program at Aston Villa called Students of the Game and I wanted it to be that the club were investing in, um, you know, the education of players um, so that whatever happens in their life, whether they get injured a lot, you know, 
God forbid, a, a long-term injury or they get released, they don't feel like their life is over. Mm. They've got some other aspects of their life that they can put energy into. I think it's super important. Well, it's a real, really been a big problem and something that's been discussed. I mean, yeah. recently um, a kid yeah. killed himself yeah. off the back of... 17. I mean, yeah. Yeah, whenever I read his age, I just think, God, like it just makes my heart sink. Mm. But um, th- that's what I'm talking about. This kind of football is everything. It defines me. It's everything. It's so dangerous because actually for every Raheem Sterling, there's about 20 kids that, well, more than that, mm-hmm. that mm. don't make it. And you, you can't expect these kids to have the level of emotional maturity that is needed at that age to handle such a big rejection, isn't it? If you are at a huge yeah. club and it doesn't work out, it's going to it's, yeah. it's gonna just punch this hole in your life. And it's yeah. as you say, it's so important that there's a net there, that there's something it's ready to... It's that aftercare bit, Yeah, absolutely. It? And, and it's, it's also, yeah, and it's also just giving people other avenues. Um, give, investing in people. You know, I think players have become commodities and assets, but it's people. You know, if 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 I if I say to you, yeah, you know, we want to give you everything to be a top footballer, but we also want to give you everything to, you know, make sure that you're studying in in a, in a course you want to study in. It's up to you what you do with it, but I'm investing in you as a person outside of you as a footballer. It has nothing to do with the club, mm. you know, in terms of. So it's. I think more clubs should do it um, because you know it, it, you can't be defined and, and forget football. Anybody, you know, whatever we do in life, we we our work. You know, some of us are lucky to sort of our passion becomes our work, which is really great. But for those of us that have you know jobs, you, you can't let it sort of take over your life. And you know, it, you've got to sort of have another outlet. I think it's really healthy. It sounds as though it did for you. Some of the passages where you, for example, didn't win the FA Cup the oh, first yeah. time with yeah, Chelsea. Yeah. yeah. You know, spoiler alert, she does in the end, guys, which is great. <laughs> um, but the, and I think that's credit to the kind of the process of writing the story with, mm-hmm. with Josie LeBlond, mm-hmm. um, who you wrote it alongside. You clearly are someone who feels things very, very deeply in terms yes. of of defeat like that yeah. and the way that that's written I mean I loved the fact that you could get a real hold on what it meant to you I, I mm. is it was a real kind of privilege to be inside your mind in that mm. moment but wow yeah how did you deal with that yeah no I think um so everything I've just said I think is is me sort of five years on from from that victory um and six years on from the biggest failure of my life and so I've learned a lot of, I've learned that actually you can't just sort of let football dictate everything. And, you know, so the book starts off talking about that failure where, you know, we lost on the last day of the season and we lost the league on the last day of the season. It was this big public embarrassment. I felt like I'd let loads of people down, wanted to quit football. Um, it was like, I'm done. Um, and it was this kind of like, you know, just shattering of like I just felt completely worthless um, and I was working at the time at um, a law firm part-time and I remember calling writing in and saying I can't come to work and I got an email and this was a massive reality check for me and I got an email back from my boss at the time and he said any I understand you know you've lost a football game but 
there's there's a staff member who lost his wife recently, like, and he still came into work, and I was like, oh, oh god, and do, do you know what I mean? And it's sort of, it was this kind of like football was. I just couldn't. It was like it was everything, and there was no perspective. Um, and I think failure can be that for a lot of people. Like, if you if you if it you know, it's really important that I I think I learned that failure can be a springboard. To, to success and you can't let it kind of defeat you in the way I, I let it defeat me I was like I want to quit football I can't go into work um, obviously you can be disappointed and you can process it but it, it can't be a thing where it just kind of overtakes your life so um, you know and, and, and that was 2014 2015 we won <laughs> so and, and I, I genuinely think the, the the reason we won is because everybody in that team was able to process that defeat and it give us this fire to kind of go that one step further. And I don't think Chelsea have looked back since, you know, since 2015, it's just been win after win after win. It's like it broke something. Yeah. Um. So I'm super proud of that. Super proud of not just, you know, the win, but the lesson about, you know, failure and success and using failure to kind of, you know, shape you make you better it sounds like a very intense way to live your life if you're like living at that level of <laughs> competition you know it's too much and that yeah. may that this kind of leads me to something i've been wondering about about your retirement which is fa- fairly recent so yeah you retired with juventus having won a treble and finished as their top scorer so <laughs> i think we can assume you've probably got something left in the tank if you did want to carry on yeah but w- w- was, did you deliberately choose to go out on a high yes. so as to like go, you know what, I'm done with how stressful this is? Right. And it w- right. You've summed it up. You've <laughs> summed it up. That's exactly um, what I was thinking. I think that's just how um, my brain kind of works. And I I also didn't really want to kind of... Um, there's, there's a combination of factors. So there's that, what you've just said about sort of always wanting to leave at the top of the mountain. Mm-hmm. Um which there's something kind of really empowering about that. Um, I was also missing home, Um, you know, living in Turin, Juventus is everything. And I'm a person that actually likes to have things outside of football, as Mm. I've mentioned. So that was quite all consuming living in, living in Turin for, for that amount of time. Um, And then there was like, you know, the opportunities here, it was like, okay, do I get one year contract at maybe a lesser club, um, or do I try and now focus on my next the next five years of my life start another career um, there was that so I wanted to invest in my future um, and, and obviously take on this sporting director job um, but it was it was a combination of all those things but I quite like the fact I finished at the top of the mountain yeah. in, in that way sort of you know put your flag in and, <laughs> and off you go sail off into the sunset yeah, yeah. okay well we're going to take a quick break just now and uh, and come and hear about what it takes to get to that sunset I guess All right, guys, welcome back to the book club today with Eni Aluko in with Jim and me to talk about her book, They Don't Teach This, all about her life as a professional footballer and a tiny bit heading off into the sunset, as we just mentioned. Before the sunset arrived, I don't think it's the sunset, is it, Eni? You're, what, 33? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, people have told me that I, I retired very early. 
Um, but I think people forget I started very early. Yeah. Mm. And you've um, achieved, as so we've talked about. In relative terms, it's been a long, long, long journey. We've You've achieved an enormous amount. And, yeah. and you've also, as we mentioned in part one, we've talked about all sorts of different areas of not just the sport, but also law that you that you got involved in, working part-time in a law firm, completing all those exams while playing for England, playing for Team GB. Mm. I mean, you know, one of the... Would you say one of the most difficult things you had to contend with was this period of time where um, you ended up talking to the or having to deal with questions within England Women's Setup about mm. how, I suppose, about how the FA was running the women's game? Um, I guess the summary of it is that uh, in 2014, Mark Sampson became the boss of the England Women's team. Yeah. And you were at that stage building a career at Chelsea you'd you'd go on to become the side's all-time top scorer you were named in the women's player of the year in the 2015 double winning season yes not bad yeah um and anyway Mark, Mark Sampson came in you know you seem to be in the form of your life for your country too you were top scorer in world cup qualifying for the 2015 tournament you started to feel as though he didn't maybe value you as a player as much as you were used to, I guess, with Hope Powell. And then as time went on, you started to hear strange comments about you and another player and you started to feel as though there was something bigger going on. Is that yeah. is that a good summary of no, it? No, that's a perfect summary. Um, I, I think that, you know, as you said, at that point I was 11 years in. Um, so I was a senior player and somebody that, you know, for me felt like I was very important to the journey of where the women's team had gone I sort of was always somebody that used my voice to try and improve standards for the women's game, not just for myself, but for the whole team and for the whole game. Um, it's a real passion of mine is, is what the women's game. Um, so I felt that the level of respect based on that and in comparison to other people um, who probably didn't have as much experience um, was was slightly odd. Um, but, but often when a new manager comes in, you, there is a sort of, you know, it's like it's like dating. You sort of trying to suss each other out, um, and so I, I would just you do what footballers do, and you just sort of say, okay, well, I'll just show you on the pitch, which I actually I felt like I was doing. Um, was you know, as you said, I was having a very very good season with Chelsea, and I I almost felt like the more the the more successful I was becoming, the worse the treatment got. Um, and one thing I hope has come across in the book as well is that, you know, whether it's racism, whether it's bullying, whether it's sexism, often these behaviours are silent. They're not always something that's said. Mm. It's a feeling, it's um, it's a set of behaviours by a group of people towards you that makes you feel incredibly isolated. And as I said, after 11 years, I'm not supposed to feel isolated that's my home, right? I'm mm. an England player. I've, I've earned it. I've earned the right. Mm. Um, so it was just really, really horrible because I felt so isolated. I felt so paranoid. I felt like people were talking about me all the time. But it was coming from the coach. So of course people were talking about me. They were, he was giving them licence to. Um, and later actually admitted that to me. So um, it was a really, really difficult time um, in my life because... It really just made me question, like you know, leadership and 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 how the the culture of of the England team um, and where it was kind of leading to. Um, 
yeah, different, really, really difficult time. The, probably the hardest time of my life, actually. It's it's quite a tough read at points reading about that, mm. purely because, as you said, there's a lot of insidious stuff happening where the treatment yeah. of you can be read in a lot of different ways, which right. is probably by design because you right. know, exactly. you know, it, it it reads very much as if, and the situation clearly seems you've been you've been a, a victim of racism and sexism and all, all kinds of different things. But it, it, I almost get the impression that on the surface, it was like you were being victimised for being uh, an introvert. Like, because, you know, you holiday alone sometimes and yes. sometimes you keep yourself to yourself and some people just do, you yes. know, some people are just yeah. introverted and then like, oh, you don't join in is actually this right. horrible yeah. Trojan horse for a lot right. of other things that were un- under the surface. And it feels like, right. um, it feels like the FA had control of the narrative for a long, long time and tried to sort of paint you as a difficult person. Yeah. <sighs> well, well, the FA, the FA stuff actually didn't come in until much later. So... Um, Mark Sampson came in in 2014. Um, it didn't. This this sort of episode didn't go public until 2017, and that's when the FA stuff really started to double down because effectively they were protect, protecting him. Mm. Um, so there was a two year period really where this stuff was going on for quite a long time, and um, as you said, because I felt so isolated, um, I was kind of isolating myself. Yeah. Um, and and actually, I do like to kind of go for walks on my own, and and you know, I I have an independent mind, um, and and I think in 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 a lot of cultures, whether it's corporate cultures, whether it's team sport cultures, there's this kind of risk of groupthink, where everybody has to think the same, talk the same, look the same, mm. be the same. It's super dangerous because actually, what about individuality? We're all different, so you shouldn't feel demonized for having a different view and as I said I was always somebody who used my voice nobody cared about that before Mark Sampson arrived Mm -hmm. when he arrived and created a culture where that was wrong I was then the black sheep um for for one of a better term so it, it it was like I was balancing okay I'm here to play football and I I just want to get in and get out and this is part of a culture I just feel really really strange in and and don't feel like my voice wants to be heard so gradually my voice just became I just wasn't speaking I just didn't speak to anyone Mm. um and I I suppose it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy Mm. because you were then it was then pointed out that you weren't joining in if you felt things weren't going your way and you know the reactions your reaction to being badly treated was then used as another stick to beat you with it it sounds like so one of the things I found really interesting was that it seemed like some of your teammates were susceptible to this idea as well and there's a a point where um, um, the England team run over to celebrate with the manager when this stuff had started to come out so I'm interested since the book has come out and you've you've been able to you know, have your right of reply and get your side of the story over. Has has that changed sort of some of the perceptions of people that you knew at the time? And has that been like, has that, have you, has it, have you managed to take control of the narrative again a bit? Have people reacted to you differently now that they actually know what really happened? Yeah, no, definitely. I think, um, so the FA side of it um, was, so once, so let's rewind a little bit. So I was asked, ironically, to be part of a culture review by the FA team. Um, and their view was, you've been in the team a long time. Give us your views on the culture confidentially. And I actually saw it as an opportunity to just be really honest and say, look, guys, like I'm struggling. And a few other people who look like me are too. 
So mm. you d- so you didn't think that that was all part of a sort of a setup. That that felt to me as though that was something. It it, it felt like well not at the time no uh. maybe naively I just thought oh okay and I'd always got on with the FA like yeah, you know, yeah. I did my work placement at the FA like so it wasn't odd for them to ask me to, to do, do something I, I you know I used to pretty much be the media spokesperson for the team you know because so you wasn't, speak so well yeah it wasn't odd so I was like okay cool like. I'm going to be honest, if it's a safe space and it's if we're confidential, I'm going to tell them that, like, this has been a struggle. Mm. Um, you know, forget what's going on on the pitch and me being able to score goals. Like, I'm I, I'm struggling. Um, and I did that. And, um, you know, next, within 10 days, I was dropped from the team. Um, and then I sort of started to figure out what was going on or what I perceived what was going on. And... Um, then next minute it was in the papers. So once it got into the papers, it was then David V. Goliath, media machine, smear campaign. She's bitter. She's angry. She was a bully anyway. All of this really nasty, sinister stuff um, that I then had to kind of put my right of reply. And I think when I did that with the BBC and with The Guardian, it was like, oh, that makes sense. Mm. Um, and so uh, I think at that time, hopefully it kind of balanced out what was really horrible, um, stuff being said about me that just wasn't true. Um, and then, yeah, I I had the opportunity to kind of in the book really give people an idea of this wasn't something that just happened in 2017. This is like, you know, this is what, what perceived bullying or racism looks like like it's a long it's a series of events mm. yes you know because all think of which are deniable was, in think some cases that was a that was the perception that i really bothered me that it was this like oh she got dropped and and used the race card it's like no like actually mm. i complained about this for, uh, for a long time um so and look there'll there'll always be people who want to think what they want to think and there'll always be people who um, have a sort of defensive view. I think from the player's point of view, going back to the cultural piece, it was such a strong culture of groupthink, which had its benefits. You know, we we ended up getting to the, you know, get a bronze medal in the, in the World Cup. It, it, it has its benefits on the pitch, but off the field... If you don't have, if you don't think like everybody else, you're isolated, you're you're ostracized. So um, it wasn't a surprise to me that most of the players who benefited from that culture weren't going to back me. <laughs> you don't yeah. want to rock the boat because yeah, you have. Like, yeah, yeah. It's human nature, isn't it? Um, and it's difficult out there. It was obviously a difficult, difficult yeah. time for you. And if and you can see why people who didn't feel as though they had skin in the game because they were actually benefiting yeah. wouldn't want to get involved and I think uh, yeah I mean I think um uh, that's not to justify them yeah I no, just I, I th- yeah you're right I think there isn't really I think it's just an explanation of of how kind of human beings react it's sure. like okay how's this going to affect me I can't rock the boat women's football you know was still at a point where like the FA were paying salaries so it's like I'm not going to give up my life for you any like and and I get that. Um, I think what disappointed me more is that people doubled down and sort of said, well, I never saw any racism and sort of tried to paint me out to be a liar. So you cannot say anything and then you can say something that's actually very damaging. 
that was the part where I was like, mm, that's 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 not right. Um, but some, you know, some players since then have privately messaged me and, and sort of apologised and said, look, I, I've realised that actually what happened to you was really, 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 really bad and I wouldn't want it to happen to anyone else. And, and I, you know, and I, I talk about forgiveness in the book. You know, I really had to get to a point where I was like, I let it just, I let it go. Mm. I, I, and, you know, I lost my England career because of this. So I let it, I had to let it go. It was eating away at me. I was angry. I was, um, so it, 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 I've sort of let it go and risen above. And, and, and I see it kind of now as that door closed and so many other doors opened. Maybe I wouldn't have been able to go to Juventus. Maybe I wouldn't have sort of done lots of the punditry stuff I've been able to do. Like there's so much I've done since then that I'm very grateful for. Yeah. Um, and I think if we look at some real bad, difficult moments in our life like that, then we're able to sort of put them in a box and, you know, learn from it. Mm. That's a common trope, though. I mean, when we spoke to Paul Cannaville, uh, Chelsea's first black player for a book club a little while ago, he said that he'd had people come up to him in the context of racism. He'd had people come up to him who had been abusing him on the terraces and calling him Mm. like unspeakable mm. disgusting things had subsequently come up to him maybe like 10 years later and said oh yes you know I want to apologize which is I guess good that someone's gone on a journey like mm. that but it, is it not I think we're products I, I think without even knowing it people are products of their environment mm. and you want to fit in you want to fit in so you do things that like you know there's all sorts of books on this like and people talk about a crowd think effectively crowd think group think you know there's you know without sort of making any sinister really sinister comparisons but like you know i've read books on sort of nazi soldiers who did really awful things but actually didn't want to do it mm. so so it's like it's that it, it's that kind of and back in poor carnival's time it was okay to shout those kind of things it was cultural but you know, you know, so people come to the realization in their senses. A lot of the, the the messages I received from players was this year when the George Floyd stuff happened, and they're like, "Oh my god!" Like when I had the time to do something, I didn't. Yeah, or I didn't even notice it to so, go by their own right. Yeah, so accounts people of it. come to a realization later, and it and it's okay because it's like I'd rather you come to it than just pretend like everything was fine. <laughs> Um, but I think a lot of people just are product. Yeah, they're products of really quite damaging cultures. It's tough being that canary in the coal mine, though, isn't it? Like you having to go in and, yeah, and suffer that. It and... is tough. But like I said, you know, I I try not to. I don't see myself as a victim. I see myself as somebody that okay, that was meant to happen to me. My career, England career, was meant to end in that way, and as a result, there's many things that I've done that other players can't don't didn't have the benefit to do um and I, I kind of look at it like that like okay that door closed and um lots of other amazing doors opened it wasn't great it wasn't fun but it's a bit like a you know a bad relation and, and a relationship that ended and you just think well thank you know thank god i'm not with him anymore or her <laughs> you know it's a bit like yeah. you kind of look back and you went okay well it's all right what you came on to do afterwards, uh, yeah. it would be nice to talk about a little bit as well. Being the first female pundit on Match of the Day in 2014. Yeah. That's really massive because what, it's one of those examples of a tide turning like instantly. Mm. The day before that had never happened and was never going to happen. And then that day it, ha it 
you know, and it opens yeah. the door for all of the success that that lots of people, you know, including plenty I could think of as as people I really admire, uh, and of course Alex Scott, who's doing so well, you know, and mainstream television as well, yeah. if you like, these days. But how did that come about? Because so you were still very much, you know, a full-time athlete at that stage, weren't you? Yeah, so um, I think just a build-up of things, really. So I, I'd sort of done a lot of um, sort of small interviews for the England team. Um, I was always kind of the one that was sort of pushed forward to do interviews and I was happy to do so um, and had built a kind of rapport with lots of different journalists and reporters who just kind of enjoyed the fact I was so open mm. um, and um, I, I got an agent around the same time um, and I wanted to kind of just try and develop my media career a little bit um, so I did lots of like kids tv stuff and like lots of little like radio stuff and um, which gave me confidence that I could do it yeah. um, and then after about two years it came the opportunity to do match of the day and I think this is when the media was starting to kind of try and see okay let's try and include women in this <laughs> you know let's let's see um and I was sort of a beneficiary of that um maybe an experiment <laughs> at the time um so I did feel the weight of responsibility um because I, I knew that if I don't do well I'll just be cast off as oh she's a woman she doesn't know what she's talking about so I really I saw it as an opportunity and not a barrier um it's really tough though because a lot of you know a lot of being good at broadcasting as you know yourself yeah. now that you've done quite a, you've done a hell of a lot yeah, yeah. is not just the preparation which you obviously and mm. you can hear in the book if you want to learn how to be a pundit get this book guys <laughs> it's really interesting about how any prepared and and very different to to many people as you also mentioned who mm. turn up and are like what are the bloody games what are we doing here yeah. um but yeah so uh you know you obviously prepared a lot but a lot of the the way of being good at broadcasting i think it comes with practice so there's a massive yeah. pressure on you to turn up and it was huge pressure but i think i just said to myself and maybe this is part of my legal training as well like as a lawyer you prepare a case um and you know there's a sort of end date where you go into court and you sort of present that case and you win or you lose it was a little bit like that in the sense that I was like right if I know my stuff and I know you know I know sort of my topics and what I'm talking about then it's then it's just about delivery um and I had really good advice at the time from my agent who said just pretend it's like mates and, you know, you're just chatting like with your mates in a living room. Um, and so when I got on the show, it was John Motson and uh, Kevin Kilban. Huh. And, oh, yeah, um, of course. Really, you know, they were really warm and really lovely, which helped. And, um, yeah, it was just easy. It just felt <laughs> easy. But it felt easy because I, I, I had a sort of rehearsed what my opinion was on the topics of the day mm. um it wasn't sort of off the cuff yes um and i knew that if i if i did all right then it would be like it would open the door for so many other women it's like oh women can do it yeah i kind of put that pressure on myself um which maybe isn't healthy but i think that's the reality um if you're the first one to do it you've got a target on your back it's a classic syndrome yeah of yeah. and of you represent because you're the one person in, yeah, in there yeah. you're representing all of the other all people of the who other are a people, bit like you and yeah. um, did you expect i mean you know jim mentioned earlier that kind of toxic uh twitter mob style life actually twitter at the time was was really nice to me like I, I don't remember seeing anything negative at the time um 
yeah, it was fine. Um, it was really, it gave me a lot of confidence to do more at the time. And I think shortly after I did, I was the first um, player t- to do the ITV highlights for the men's European Championships. Um, so it gave me a lot of confidence because I, I felt like, I felt like, you know, I was kind of accepted in the world of punditry wow. at the time. It's slightly different now. It's it, ironically sort of 12 years on from that. Um I actually feel now, even as an experienced pundit, that people are just waiting for me to make a mistake. Um, so, for example, I did a Man U game not long ago and it was a bit of a tongue twist. I was talking about Marcus Rashford and, and Mason Greenwood in the same sentence. And I ended up saying Mason Greenford um, because Rashford Green. Yeah. Anyway, said mate, I'd said the right name for the first 45 minutes of the show. <laughs> Um, I mean, I know it's Mason Greenwood and um, ended up saying Mason Greenford. And it was like, oh, my God, she doesn't know. <laughs> She's never she heard of this guy. <laughs> Get her off the telly. And it's like, come on. Yeah, this, so this... so it's just that kind of that's the pressure because it's like we're imperfect, you know, and and you've got to be able, you, even as, as sort of in terms of delivery. I mean, you guys will know you do this for a living. Like you want to just flow. Yeah. Right. And, you know, maybe if you want to correct yourself, you, you do. But if you go in there thinking, I have to be absolutely pitch perfect, say the right thing, it's 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 debilitating. Yeah. Um, sound like a robot as well. Right, right. And and I think that's the double standard for women because a, a bloke can go on and maybe make that mistake. And it's not even because we're conditioned to see him... Mm. But we're not conditioned yet still to see, well, a lot of people aren't necessarily conditioned to hear a woman's voice, let alone see a woman. So it's like mistake out. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's hard. mistake out. And that goes for all women as well. <laughs> That's the thing. Precisely. That, yeah. Precisely. And it's this kind of, oh my God, what is Sky doing? Or what a be, you know, this movement towards more women is a joke. And it's just really nasty. Um, but you got to kind of push through that. And I think that's why, you know, people like Alex... Scott, it's just amazing because you, you sort of, the, your skin gets thicker mm. um, and you've got to be able to tell yourself the people that matter think I'm good. It's all festering underneath that app. <laughs> and I think Twitter now need to really do something about it. Um, yeah. But, but we also have a choice of whether to be on it or not. Quite. That is true, but people say <laughs> you shouldn't your... leave the playground just because the bullies are in there, That's don't they? And, and, and I mean, in your case, to bring it back to where we started, you know, you can pull all of your thoughts in a nice book that people can buy exactly. and uh, take home and read, which I re- we very much recommend. Yeah, heartily, absolutely. We, thank you very so much, much recommend that you recommend that everyone should read. It's um, Aniola Aluko, They Don't Teach This. Pick up a coffee now at all good bookshops and make sure to subscribe to Football Ramble Presents wherever you get your podcasts. On the Continent Lives Here and the next edition of Book Club will head straight to you when it's out in a couple of weeks' time. Thanks for listening to the Book Club with the three of us. We'll catch you next time. This was a Stakhanov production and part of the ACAST Creative Network. 